With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So, Austin, welcome to the show. I'm glad you can make it. Thanks for having me. So, Austin Cleon, author of Show Your Work, and before that was really your initial bestseller, Steal Like an Artist. And that came out of a talk that you gave, right? Yeah, that was a talk I gave at a community college in upstate New York. And community colleges exist? Like, do they actually educate the kids? They're probably better educations than Ivy League schools just because they're cheaper. I think community colleges are picking up the slack in higher ed in a way that we can't even imagine. Um, I have experienced, you know, I, I have experienced that... Students from community colleges are actually a way better uh, audience than from some of the more affluent schools, mainly because they're really hungry. You know, they're really, um, they're working really hard. A lot of them, you know, work jobs on the side and stuff. And they're really hungry to have good people in and, and people who have kind of like, I don't know, made it or are doing what they, you know, what they're meant to do or whatever. So um, I've always had a really good experience uh, speaking to students at smaller schools. That, that's good. I, I've had a horrible experience speaking at, like, the larger schools, mostly because my main talk is why you should not get a college education, and that never goes well <laughs> yeah, along well right? with the professors. But uh, so steal like an artist. Why don't you tell us what that means? Initially, it sounds like plagiarism, but obviously that's not what it means. And, and also... I find it to be uh, a book about creativity in general and not just for the artist. So maybe address that a little. Uh, Still Like an Artist is a riff off of something that T.S. Eliot said. Um, T.S. Eliot said, immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. Bad poets deface what they take, and good poets make it into something better. And so the whole point of Steal Like an Artist is that in order to do better work, you don't shut yourself down from influence and try to be wholly original. You actually open up the gates and you embrace influence and you embrace a diverse amount of influence and you bring it back and you, you know, kind of make yourself a mashup of what you let into your life. And that, that's how you find your work, by embracing influence, not running away from it. So, so what's an example of that? What does embracing influence mean? Oh, I think probably the easiest example in our culture right now is someone like Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino. You know, Quentin Tarantino has this kind of, you know, uh, encyclopedic knowledge of film. And what he does is he just takes all these movies there in his brain and all these movies they've seen. 
and he weaves them into something that's, you know, he's one of our most original filmmakers, paradoxically, you know, because he's using all these references and all these homages to different films in his movies, but he's coming up with something that's his own. Uh, and I would say kind of the, uh, you know, a similar entrepreneurial parallel is Google. Google was certainly not the first search engine. It was probably the, the eighth search engine. But, you know, it took uh, kind of tweaks and examples from other disciplines, other scientific disciplines, to create a better ranking system for pages than, than the other search engines that existed at the time, like AltaVista or, or whatever, Inktomi, Lycos. Yeah, and my friend, uh, my friend Kirby Ferguson has a series called Everything is a Remix, where he talks about the history of Apple Computer and the iPhone as a great example. You know, the idea that, like, being first with the technology is really not the most important. It's about where you can take it to, you know. Yeah, and so so okay, so more more recently you wrote Show Your Work, which is almost like a part two of uh, you know, steal like an artist, and in fact, you even, you refer a lot in steal like an artist to the idea that every day you have to show something. And uh, so, what, what, what was the genesis of show your work? Show your work began on book tour for steal like an artist. I thought I had pretty much said everything I had to say, and I had even had a chapter in the book that said do good work and show to people, or do good work and share it with people which is was my response to anyone that ever came up and said, you know, how do I get my stuff out there? But when I was on tour, like, the, the most questions came in the form of questions about self-promotion. Like, how do I get my work out there? How did you market yourself? How did you, you know, how did you get your stuff into the world? And um, I really hate talking about self-promotion, <laughs> like a lot of people. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to write a book that answered all those questions. I wanted to write a book that was kind of a, a guide to um, kind of an anti-self-marketing book, a book that was about kind of replacing the idea of self-promotion with sharing. Well, and, and, um, and again, this is not just for the artist, but I sort of feel we live in this, what I call the, the uh, choose-yourself world, where all the cubicle jobs are being eliminated, and whether it's a, a, a work, being an artist, or being an entrepreneur, where you, or being a solopreneur, where it's like a one-man business, everybody kind of has to move to a more entrepreneurial or creative activity. And it doesn't have to happen tomorrow, but it's kind of this slow transition that's taking place in the economy. And self-promotion, or however you want to call it, showing your work, is critical. I mean, if you whether it's a work of art or a new app or a new laundromat that opens down the street, you kind of have to figure out how to be unique and distinct out there. And so you have one chapter in Show Your Work called So What?, which is, um, well, why don't you describe what that chapter is about? Oh, yeah, so the so what test. Um, I had a teacher one time returned all our papers to us, and she wrote that on the board, so what? She said, that's what you should ask yourself before you turn on a piece of writing. And so it's really true for sharing, too. I mean, the, the best way to know if you're, you know, just shamelessly self-promoting or whether you're sharing in a way that contributes something to other people is to give yourself the so what test, ask if what you're sharing is either interesting or useful to other people. 
And if you put everything you share through that test, it improves the quality of what you share. It's really hard, though. Like, like for instance, I write every day. I usually write a blog post every day. And you have to really, you know, you're competing against essentially a billion other people with blogs. Or let's say you make an app, you're competing against, you know, millions of apps in the iTunes store. It's really hard to pass the so what test. And I think you bring it up that, you know, people who uh, have a, a sense of quality where they know what's good and what's not good, they know when they start that for months or maybe years, they're not going to be good for a long time. Right. And, yeah, and so it's I very difficult to pass that so what test. Yeah, I mean, there's a big gap when you start out between the stuff that you love and the stuff that you're producing quality-wise, you know, and I think, so I think there's a few things you have to do. One, you just have to kind of be gutsy and put your stuff out no matter what, because in the act of, like, putting your stuff out, you're going to make room to make new stuff. Um, But secondly, I think... You know, when your work isn't up to par with those people that you really uh, that you really look up to, share that other work. Share that work of the people that you know. Give pay tribute to your heroes. Pay tribute to people who are doing the work that you're really excited by, and and shine a spotlight on that stuff. And that's a really easy way to get started sharing your own work, is sharing the work of others. Yeah, and also it, it allows you to really do an in-depth study of the people you admire. So I find when I do a real in-depth look at whether it's the entrepreneurs or writers or artists or baseball players or whoever that I admire, that's the way I improve, by learning their lessons. Because they live, it's almost as if they live their life for my benefit, so I could kind of take the most important lessons and apply it to my own life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I read the obituaries every morning. You know, well, t- tell me about that, like, because that was sort of the one chapter in in your book. Like, I I have to tell you, I read Show Your Work uh, every single day before I start my own writing, and it's always <laughs> inspirational. That was the one chapter, read obituaries, which I have not yet kind of implemented in my own life. I I don't read obituaries, but uh, mostly because I don't have a newspaper I don't even know where I'd go online to read obituaries but like why obituaries why do you read them well I read obituaries because there's something about you know in order to have an obituary in a in a major newspaper like say the New York Times or the Telegraph in England or the you know the Guardian or something you had to do something with your life you know whether it was good or bad you know you did something with it and so there's something about reading about people who did something with their lives who are now on the ground uh, that kind of makes me want to do something with mine. And the other thing I like about obituaries is they're just a really good history lesson. You know, you got people, uh, you kind of learn about all different trades and all sorts of parts of the world and all different time periods by kind of reading these lives. And like you said, these people lived their lives um, so that, you know, maybe maybe they lived their lives and they learned something so they could pass it on to you, you know. And so I always find that there's some little nugget in every obituary that gets me thinking about my own life and how I live. Well, like, what's an obituary you read today or yesterday that kind of inspired you? Oh, my gosh. Um, let's see. Obituaries. Well, the one that pops out the most recently that I just keep going back to is Harold Ramis. When Harold Ramis died, the famous director and the um and an actor um i just there were so many things that he had gripped onto in his life that i just 
felt like were so uh, so kind of illuminating to my own um, particular. Well, well, there's one thing you mentioned. I, I think it was you who mentioned in. It might have been. I forget which book now it was in. But you mentioned that Harold Ramis said you you, you should always. Uh, stand next to the most talented person in the room. And fortunately for him, Bill Murray was the most talented person in the room. Right. I mean, and he said, he said, not only stand next to that person, figure out how you can be helpful, you know, because <laughs> he had a, he had a very, like, he was very, um, he was a very kind and, 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 and thoughtful and genuine guy, but he was also very strategic about the partnerships he formed, and he, 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 you know, he identified these people with great talent and made sure that he was around and that he was doing something for them, and his whole career came out of making those friendships and those connections. Let, let, let's talk about this for a second, because this is kind of a, an undercurrent through your books, and I think it's, uh, I think it's critical for today's entrepreneur and artist, which is that it's not just about coming up with a genius idea. It's about also the group you form around you. Like, and you call it, and show your work, you call it your genius as opposed to being a genius. And uh, this is true throughout history. Like you see it with, you know, back in the early 60s, the, the unknown Rolling Stones hanging out with the unknown Beatles or all the, the beats in the beat movement like Jack Kerouac, William S. Burroughs, Al, Allen Ginsberg all hanging out together. All the guys in Silicon Valley hanging out together before, you know, semiconductors became, you know, all over the world. So this seems to be critically important to success not only what original work you produce and how you share it, but who you share it with and who you hang out with and who you exchange ideas with. Yeah, it's kind of same as it ever was, you know. I mean, I think that that idea of seniors actually comes from the musician Brian Eno, and it was his response to that whole, you know, lone genius myth that, you know, um, and I think it's true. I think the... the um, you know, the world we're living on now, I think is so interesting, is that it used to be you had to go somewhere geographically to hang out with, to build your seniors. You had to, you had to move to Silicon Valley, you had to move to New York, you had to move, you know, where, you had to move to 1920s Paris. Um, but now I think, you know, what is the internet but one giant seniors waiting to happen? You know, and so in my career, particularly, um, I've used the internet to build my seniors and to become friends and make, you know, friendships online. And then those people later become friends in real life. You know? Well, let, let's take that a step further, though, because obviously you became friends with people who were doing similar types of work and you had similar interests and you were kind of rising up at the same time. What does somebody just starting, um, like let someone just starting out in business say, how do they kind of gravitate towards the right seniors for themselves? Like, what steps should they put in place? Well, I think the first thing is to start out as a fan. You know, pick that pick that one, two, three businesses who you think are really cooking and just learn everything there is to know about them and, and follow them online and, and, uh, and, you know, narrow in on the people who you think are really doing it right, you know, the type of people you want to be. And, you know, you, first of all, you just be a fan of theirs and a follower and just, you know, kind of soak up as much as you can. And then you kind of figure out who's following them and what their seniors is, and you just kind of start looking for a place for yourself. But I, I really think if you want to have fans, you know, you have to start out as a fan first. And that's true in business as it is in art. 
Right. Well, well, you see it in. Um, well, look at it in Silicon Valley. There's the phenomenon known as the PayPal mafia. So all these ex-employees of PayPal obviously formed their seniors and then started off companies like you know Yelp and YouTube and you know all these other companies that became huge successes, Tesla uh, and so on. Yeah, totally. I mean, and I think that's true in any. You know, I, I think it's. It's, you could probably find examples in any industry. What other artists are in your seniors? Oh, um, I don't, let me, <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's interesting because uh, I have so many. I mean, um, I think what was, for me in particular, what was interesting for me coming up was I like to write and draw. So I'm about pictures and words together. And so my seniors is a little bit, if I'm looking for people who practice, you know, the same kinds of things, my seniors gets a little bit smaller um, just because there aren't that many people that use pictures and words together, you know. So I always kind of gravitated towards cartoonists um, like my friend Hugh McLeod, um, Artists like my friend Wendy McNaughton, who, you know, she draws and uses words. Um, people like my friend Mike Montero, who's an artist, but he's also a designer, uh, runs a business. Uh, so, you know, um, that kind of thing. People one of the there. things you mentioned, Sorry. which I think is really <laughs> powerful, is uh, document your work and become a documentarian. And I've been kind of doing this in my own work and also even advising um my wife, who's building a presence on YouTube with her yoga instruction, like document the process as well as the final outcome. And it turns out that that act of documentation is itself a work of art. I find that to even be sometimes more powerful than the final work itself. Yeah, I mean, I think the big hurdle for people is they just, they're like, I don't have anything for, to show for my process. You know, that that's the biggest hurdle is like, yeah, show your work. Well, I don't have work to show. But I think when you start documenting your process, whether you take pictures or whether you keep a journal of your work stuff or whether you just keep a scrapbook or, you know, whatever you do to start documenting your process, in the act of documenting it, you find out just how much you do have to share. And well, so, I, I like how in, in Steal Like an Artist you show pictures of your logbook, which I thought – you know, that itself was like a work of art. Yeah, I mean, we're living in this really interesting time where, you know, the artifacts from your process can be just as interesting to people as your final products. You know? and, and it's not even this time. Like, look at uh, Carl Jung's Red Book, which recently came well, out just in the past few years, and yet that itself is a work of art filled with his stories and, and drawings as well as, mm -hmm. you know, philosophies of, of psychology and so on. Yeah, the, I mean, the Red Book's interesting, though, because he stuck it in the vault and said you couldn't open this up until, you know, this much time has passed. So it's actually work that he didn't show anyone um, that now we have, and it's this amazing artifact, right? But you kind of wonder, like, what happened if Carl Jung had a blog? You know, would he had just blogged his Red Book? Would he put his Red Book on Instagram? I don't know. <laughs> well, well, that's just it. Right now we live in this, because of the Internet, we live in this immediate society where – Carl Jung could say, okay, I'm going to share my work, but 100 years from now, I'm going to share it. Whereas right. now, it's like, oh, I just, I just finished it. I've got, to, I've got to post it on Twitter or Facebook right now before yeah. I even rewrite it. Like there's a, yeah. oh, there's a lot more uh, feeling that, oh, I've, I just finished my app. I've got to get it out there before everyone else finishes their app. 
or you know, or whatever deal you're working on. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we're also living in a very forgiving time. Like, I think that everyone, there's so much being pushed at you all the time that, you know, if you put something that's not, you know, 100% finished or polished, you know, for one thing, you know, people will help you. You know, when it, when you're when you push your thing out, people will tell you what's wrong with it. And so it's okay to put your thing out early, but you have to be ready to go back and and make and you know polish it up for the next round. <laughs> well, well I, have, I have two comments on that. One is the interesting uh, quote that you mentioned from Theodore Sturgeon, the writer, who says uh, basically, I forget the percentage, ninety or ninety percent of all work is bad. So even if you're right. a great artist, ninety five percent of your work is just going to be bad and you're not going to know necessarily what's bad and what's good because we all smoke our own crack so we all think that most of the things we do are pretty good you know particularly after a certain point so yeah. it's it's kind of good that the world is a forgiving place but what do you do with the haters who just throw destructive criticism at you and again i always have to qualify this is not just for artists but for everybody who's who's kind of putting themselves out there and we all have to kind of get comfortable doing that there's going to be people who take you down and it's not going to be constructive how do you recognize it how do you personally deal with it I think when it comes to criticism, you immediately, the first thing you have to do is look and see who it's coming from, you know, and a lot of times when you get unconstructive, you know, criticism, it comes from someone who's not at all invested in your work and really doesn't care one way or the other about it or not. And so I think one thing that's really important is to build that, you know, that seniors that you've kind of built is to make sure that you have people in there whose opinion you really trust, who you really are looking for feedback from. But then also when you get kind of unsolicited feedback out from the world to really take stock first of who it's coming from and what they're, you know, if they have any skin in the game or not, you know. And then those when, with the people who don't care about your work anyway and really don't have anything invested in it, that's the kind of criticism it's easier to let it kind of roll off you. Now, in, in, you have one chapter titled No Guilty Pleasures, and you talk about Nelson Molina, who um, was, a, I guess, a trash collector, and he started collecting trash that looked interesting to him, and he created a museum of his trash. And what was interesting, uh, basically, of trash art. And what was interesting to me in that is so many people come to me and say, oh, I can't find my purpose in life, or I don't know what I am meant to be doing. Um, and what this sort of suggests is, is that essentially whatever, you, you might not know what you're doing, but at some point in your life, most people have been passionate or interested in something. And there's usually something you can pull out of that that could turn into a passion or something you can make money on or whatever. Like, how did... How, what step? What advice do you give to somebody who says, "How do I find my purpose in life?" Because I would say this is the most common question I get. I so I actually think that that's a very ego-driven question. You know, it's a very it's a very small. I think that that question really the the solution to me is to not think about what's inside you necessarily that needs to get out but is to look at that seniors that you want to join or that world that you want to enter and look for the voids that people haven't filled, the voids that are kind of shaped like you that you can kind of step into. 
you know, and so I think like a lot of really good work is a Venn diagram between what you feel you have to offer the world and what the world needs at the moment. And so there's like a tiny sliver there where a living or a life can be made. But I always like try to tell people like, you know, it's not just about you and it's not just about what you feel like you should be doing. It's also about what the world needs from you. And that's as true in business as it is in art, you know, is that being able to look at the world and say, you know, they, we, I could fill this spot. This is, a, this is a need, whether it's like, oh, this product needs to exist or, like, this art needs to exist. Like, this is the first step is to take stock of what people are doing. And then the second step is to take stock of what they're not doing that is work that you could be doing. So that's kind of the way I try to, like, frame it for folks. You know, and then often I find people are – and look, I get this way too. Get overwhelmed by the tasks they put in, in front of themselves. Let's say someone wants to write a novel or start a business, they they immediately get overwhelmed. But I, I think you know you have one chapter where you you basically say do something small every day because it adds up. So for instance, if you write 500 words a day, if you're a writer and you write 500 words a day, that's that's like three novels by the end of the year. It's a huge amount of work that it adds up to. And I think that's excellent advice for both the artist and the entrepreneur. A little bit each day kind of compounds. Yeah, just a little drop in the bucket every day, you know, and you get pretty soon you get a pail full of water, you know. Yeah, and it's, exactly. Uh, I think... Um, you know, people just overestimate what they would get done with these huge chunks of time. You know, oh, if I could just have three months in Paris to write my novel all day, you know, like, I would be okay. Versus if I just squirreled away 30 minutes a day to write my novel, you know. It, it, it's um, funny. I had, I had one friend in graduate school, again, over 20 years ago, who said um, if she just had a canvas in Paris, she would be able to be a painter. And, of course, she never... <laughs> Never made it to Paris and now works a cubicle job as a computer programmer. And I think a lot of people get stuck with that. They think that the situation needs to be ideal when, in fact, really you just need kind of a routine that allows you to do that a little bit each day. There's a little bit of doing each day. And as you point out, there's a little bit of sharing each day. Yeah, I really I mean, I really believe that. I think that. Um you know, I think, like, I did a lot of, I mean, I made a lot of work when I was younger when I still had a day job. And it was just all about finding the chunks of time, uh, you know, in between the cracks and the big stuff. You know, it was like, okay, I got a 20-minute to c commute to work. What kind of, what writing could I do on that commute? Or, you know, I've got an hour-long lunch break. What could I make in this time that I have? I think it's just what you said. It's like, it's not about, like, waiting until you have the time, space, and materials. It's all about, like, using the time, space, and materials you have right now to make something. Well, well, it's almost like negative waiting because, as you point out, subtraction is creation. So, uh, you know, sometimes, like, like, when you're on the commute to work, you turn off the Internet so you can start to think. And often you ha often people, they think, okay, well, I'm going to go out to dinner with my friends, then I'm going to watch some TV, then in the morning I'm going to read the newspaper, uh, I'm going to listen to the radio. Uh, all, these, all these moments are times when they could be, you know, working on their business or working on their art or their creativity or sharing or whatever. Yeah, I mean, if you want to make, it's all a matter of priorities. Like, if you want to make time for stuff, 
then you just have to subtract, you know, something else out of your day. Or, you know, I mean, one of my favorite poems is by a guy named Kenneth Koch, and it's called You Want a Social Life with Friends. And basically what Kenneth Koch is saying is like, look, everybody wants work, friends, and family. And the problem is, is you can only have two at one time. And what he says is like, you know, you can have a really great work life and a really great family life, but you might not have a lot of friends or time to socialize. Or you might have a great work life and a great friend's life, but not a lot of time for family. You know, but the, the point of the poem is that, like, life is about you have to restrain yourself and that there are some things that you have to say no to in order to say yes. Now, when you're share, so there's the work and then there's the sharing. And I think right. people confuse the two in the sense that, you know, some people will think they can't share their novel till the novel's finished. And that might be true, but there are certain aspects of the process. So, for instance, again, writing about your influences, writing about your heroes, writing about, you know, sharing your favorite uh, uh, books that you're reading that week that are inspiring you. Or your books themselves, I feel, are kind of shares around your primary art, which is kind of the, the blocking out of newspaper articles to get poetry. Like, your books themselves are sort of shares. What other types of things can, can people share? Well, I think one of the things, you don't necessarily have to share your output every day, maybe share your input. So one of my favorite, like I think a lot of my favorite minds online, again, they're not just pointing at their own network, they're pointing outwards, they're pointing at other work. Like one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite Twitter feeds to follow is a guy named Sam Anderson, and he's a writer for the New York Times Magazine. And one of the things that Sam does is just every day he posts uh, the favorite, his favorite sentence he's read for the day. So I love like, that. Yeah, it, and, and it's a perfect, it's kind of a brilliant move for him because it allows him to be around and share, but it's also like he doesn't have to come up with something every day. But he's sharing part of his process, like reading is a huge part of his process, right? It's just not his output necessarily. Well, so like you know, those- I think of it in a, a business context. I one time spoke to this guy, uh, uh, Brian Johnson, who um, started the company Braintree, which does credit card transactions. And so what he did to share every day, it's not like he's going to knock on doors trying to find clients every day because that's very hard to do. So what he did right. to share every day is he wrote a blog about everything that was going wrong in the industry. So every day it was something new that was going wrong in the industry. And by doing that, he became a trusted source in his industry and clients, instead of going to his competitors, would go to the trusted source. They would go to him. And that's how he built up his initial customer base and the company sold for over a billion dollars just recently. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a perfect example. I mean, I think that also, you know, people have this idea that if they share their expertise, they're going to somehow give away their whole game, right? When I when I think the opposite is true, I think when you teach people what you know, you just establish your expertise even more firmly. It's you know, true. Those- even if... Even if you failed along the way, and this has been a very successful thing for me, by sharing my failures in a very detailed way, like excruciating, like almost embarrassingly detailed, I have gotten more, let's call it consulting clients or other types of opportunities, investing opportunities than I've ever had before in my past. By becoming 
an embarrassing trusted source. It's been it's created all the success of my life after failing repeatedly. You know, that reminds me of the great C.S. Lewis quote. You know, he said that a fellow student can teach a fellow student just as much as the teacher can because the fellow student still has his skin in the game. You know, he's still learning. He's still really close to the problem. And he's right, closer and that's to related to your chapter, uh, uh, Be an Amateur. So it's always good right. to have kind of that. So in Zen, it's referred to as beginner's mind. It's always good, no matter where you are in the process, whether you're like the CEO of a company or an artist or just beginning something, uh, to keep that beginner's mind mentality. Yeah, to not let yourself become solidified, you know, because that's one of the things when you become a so, you know, quote unquote expert, you feel like there's nothing left to learn. And then while you're busy being an expert, someone else is, you know, around figuring out how to do it better than you. <laughs> well, and the best example of that is Albert Einstein. So he developed all his theories, and then when something new came along, quantum mechanics, he just simply could not believe it. No matter how many tests or theories proved him wrong, he wouldn't accept it. You know, God doesn't roll dice was his, was his saying. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think we always have to remain open. We have to remain students till the end, you know, because otherwise you're just propagandizing your own, you know, ideas, right? <laughs> now, something you say that's very important, which I've had to learn, and it's been very painful for me to learn, is this idea of selling out. So, you know, no matter who you are, whether you whether you're rich or poor, or successful or not successful, you have to value your work and make sure that other people value it. And I find that uh, you know catering too much to an audience that is exposed to your work for free is often damaging. And uh, you know what, what's your what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think that everybody's got to figure out a way to get paid. You know, you got to figure out a way to put bread on the table, so to speak. And um, and so I just think that um, yeah, the sellout chapter is really about ambition. It's really about not hobbling yourself in the name of keeping it real or you know keeping yourself from being a sellout. It's about like taking the next step in your game. And so if the next step is to start making money off your work, that's great. If the next step is to start using tools you're unfamiliar with and kind of to blow your audience up and have a bigger platform, you know, that's great. But just don't hobble yourself in the idea of being a sellout or someone who's like stepping over the boundaries, you know. That's what that chapter was really trying to be about. But And not being afraid to get paid because when it comes right down to it, people show how they value things based on, you know, whether they'll open their wallets for it. And, and I think to, to add to that, you have to be – you, you, you're allowed to be, I should say, creative about how you get paid. So, for instance, if you have a free blog, you might still want to keep your free blog because that exposes your material to the largest amount of people. But then that might open the door for speaking engagements where you charge quite a bit or consulting engagements or a book or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I would say, you know, I, I make a decent amount of money from, you know, book sales and stuff, but then I also make a lot of money from, you know, like you said, speaking and then, you know, doing doing client engagements and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's really about, um, like you said, getting creative with your business model. You know, like musicians have been finding out that for ages. They've found out that, you know, that records aren't the things that pay as much as the live gigs and the merch.
You know, and you know, so. I, I want to repeat again this this become a documentarian of what you do because I think I think often people get pigeonholed into what they do. So like they say, I'm a novelist, or I run a laundromat, or I am a travel agent, or or an entrepreneur, or whatever. But documenting the process is what actually gives you the unique voice, what allows you to tell your personal story on this adventure, and people value that personal story, because you even say in another chapter, tell your story. And I find for myself, like the other day, I had to give a very difficult talk. Uh, I had to speak, the speaker right before me at a conference was Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks guy, and (laughs) I was really scared to death. Uh, because I knew the audience would only be thinking about Julian Assange while I was coming onto the stage. And so I gave my talk, and and then afterwards I wrote a blog post how I solved the problem of breaking the connection between the audience and Julian Assange. Now, whether I was successful or not is up to the audience, but it was still a fun blog post to write and was a successful blog post for me. And I think people underestimate the value of of this documenting the process. And there's so many things you can document too, not just your artistic process, but relationships, parenting, business, art, and so on. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much of what we, you know, there's so much that we don't show, you know, that we do. and But yet we feel like we need to, people, you know, people have cartoon versions in their heads of what, certain types of work is and what it's not. And so I think what documenting your process does is it really gives people that behind-the-scenes documentary of your life. And instead of, like, shining a light on all the ugly spots, you know, what it really does is it just creates this portrait of work, you know. And I think when people see all the work that goes into what you do, they just value it more. Yeah, and, and, you know, Along with that is your final point, which is stick around. Like, nobody is successful out the door. Or if you are, you're much more likely to fall back into, let's say, failure or bottom or whatever. Uh, I think it's important sticking at it. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're big fans in this culture of the overnight success. You know, but I really haven't found a lot of overnight success stories that weren't you know, preceded by years and years of work. I mean, even someone like Justin Bieber, you know, you think of him as an overnight success, and then you see all these YouTube videos of him when he's like 10, you know, playing guitar for the for the camera. You know, it's like, I think overnight success is a really good marketing myth, you know, but it's not how it actually happens. And so I think that the success that comes to people, it often just comes to the people that stick around long enough. You know, speaking of Justin Bieber, I think Justin Bieber is ideally set up right now to do mashups in the sense that what if he were to sing John Lennon's Imagine? That would be a huge hit. Like when Mariah Carey sang I'll Be There, that was a huge hit. Right. So I, 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 I love this idea of kind of combining disciplines and combining ideas to come, to come up, to, to birth a new idea. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what I wrote my first book about, or the, my second book about, you know, Steal Like an Artist, was that idea of taking the things, you know, taking the things, putting two things, two different things together and coming up with a new thing. Well, know, let, let's people, talk about your 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 original art, uh, which is kind of the newspaper blackouts. Like, w- describe your art for a second, because it's very much a mashup. 
So what I do is I take every day I take a permanent marker and an article from the newspaper and I black out most of the words in the paper and just leave a few words behind. It kind of looks like if the CIA did haiku. You know, it's just a very sparse, spare poems, um, little phrases and funny sayings and stuff. And I've been doing and, that. And why? Like, what makes that interesting as opposed to just writing the the sayings? Well, I think so it turns it writing into a. Uh, I think it turns writing into a game. You know, there's a real constraint on the page. It's like I have this little. The article is kind of your canvas, and you have to kind of, or your block of, you know, your your marble block, right? And you have to kind of figure out what's inside there that not only is interesting, but is also transformative of the article, but also something that, you know, means something to you and might mean something to someone else, you know? But I think that, you know, when you go to that newspaper article, it's actually not a whole lot different than what people do when they, you know, write what you would think is the traditional way. You know, we only get 26 letters, you know, and so so much of writing is just choosing the right words and putting them in the right combinations. And so I think the blackout poems kind of, you know, they show that process just a little bit more explicitly, that when you write, you literally are choosing you know, words and phrases that have already been used and you're turning them into something new. So, and, and, you know, your books, which kind of came after this, after you started your art, your books are kind of about the the creative process and how to share. They're almost personal improvement or, or dare I say it, self-help books about creativity, but they're very good, I would argue they're very good advertising for your artwork. For instance, you share a lot of your art in your books. Like, I'll, I'll read one from the beginning pages, page four of Show Your Work. You, you block out a newspaper article, and you're left with, crafting something is a long, uncertain process. A maker should show her work. And that's kind of the theme of the book, but you got that from essentially isolating words in a newspaper article. Now, do you sell your work? Yeah, yeah, I sell my work. I don't sell my work as much as I used to, just because my income streams have kind of, you know, I keep a very... Uh, I'm kind of a one-man shop, you know, so I don't really have a lot of help. So sometimes when I'm making money off one thing, you know, I kind of ease up on the other thing. Like, the, I haven't been selling as much art lately because I've been selling books and I've been doing talks and I haven't had time to really, you know, market the art or put it out there. Um, but, yeah, of course, uh, you know, I sell my art for a while. You know, when I had a day job, uh, you know, selling my art was a really nice way to make extra money which um which was really good uh so it's always been like it's always been a little revenue stream for me it's probably going to be one that becomes you know as my work gets more and more well known and stuff it'll probably that stream will probably beef up a little bit (laughs) and and what what was your what was your day job Oh, I've done a few things. I mean, when I was right out of college, I was a librarian for a few years. Um, then I was a web designer um, for several years, and then I ended up as a copywriter in an ad agency. And so, and, um, and, and now none of those jobs. Now you're just focused on the art and the writing. Yeah. So now I just write and make art and give talks and and life is good. <laughs> That's pretty good. Like so so you're you're what I call a you chose yourself essentially. You you broke out of the cubicle prison and managed to uh do what you love. You do exactly what you want to do. 
Well, you know, I do. I, you know, I want to push back a little bit on the do what you love thing. I mean, you know, a lot of what I do is not what I love. I mean, I spend a tremendous amount of time every day doing what I call admin work, which is like, you know, answering emails and making deals and that kind of thing. I mean, I want to want to caution everyone about doing what you love is that every job is a job. And that, you know, when you turn what you love into your job, there are obviously going to be things that aren't so great about it. But overall, you know, yeah, I would say I do what I love and I do what I – but more importantly, I feel like I do what I'm really good at, you know. Um, and so well, – Well, they're related. I think people – I think when somebody's really good at something, they end up loving it or vice versa. Well, that's probably true. You know, that – uh, what was that fellow's name that uh, – he used the Steve Martin um, – quote to title his book be so good they can't ignore you uh well steve martin famously says when people ask him how to be successful he says be so good they can't ignore you and there's a guy his first name's cal i can't remember his last name who wrote a book with that title and that was his thesis is that you know you should get really good at something and then you'll end up loving it um, now and so you li- what ma- what brought you to Austin? So your name's Austin, obviously, but now you live in Austin. What what? Obviously, there's a huge artistic community there. There's the South by Southwest conference. You moved from Ohio, so clearly having a, some geographic senius was good for you. I uh, moved to Ohio by accident. Um, my or I moved to sorry. I was born in Ohio, went to school in Ohio. Um, I moved to Texas by accident. My wife got into grad school here, and, you know, I just followed her down here and uh, just got a job, and we just kind of liked it here. Um, I think Austin's fed me creatively in a lot of ways, probably not in ways that you'd expect. Um, You know, I don't have, like, a lot of writer and artist friends in Austin. I hang out with a lot of, like, filmmakers and designers and... Uh, but I also, you know, there is a cool creative scene here, but most, most practically for me, or at least it used to be, it's getting less and less affordable. You know, when I moved to Austin, it was actually a pretty affordable place with a lot of really cool culture. Uh, now the market is such that, you know, it's becoming increasingly less affordable. So It's um, funny, it, it, out of the uh, 10 or so guests I've had on this podcast, I think you're the third Austin resident that I've had. Oh, wow, really? Who were the other two? Uh, well, Tucker Max lives in Austin, and Ryan Holiday just moved to Austin. Oh, right, yeah, Tucker and Ryan, yeah, they live here. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so, uh, and I think, you know, that was that was a big, I know for Ryan, I, I know Ryan personally, I don't really know Tucker, but I know that for Ryan that was, you know, that was definitely part of the appeal, was it, you know, compared to like L.A. or New York, it was, it's it's still incredibly affordable. But for Austinites, it's getting less and less affordable. But, um, yeah, it's a cool place. I mean, you know, I think that basically, I mean, as someone who came up on the Internet, though, I've always felt like my most personal, meaningful relationships were people who I just knew on the web, you know. Um, Well, I I would say, and again, and this is an example of just how much show your work influences me, every day – I try to show my work and it's not like I go up and down my town and knock on people's doors and say, hey, here's what I did today. I'm always using either Facebook or Twitter or my 
uh, blog or this podcast or whatever to show my work. And what was what's been inspiring about your book is that it's encouraged me to look at new ways to show my work. So, for instance, I've never used Vine or Pinterest before, but now I've started using those. Uh, you know, let's call it a media to show my work as well. I'm trying to be creative about how to show my work. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about like taking the tools that we all have access to and figuring out what you can use them for. So I think that's really awesome that you're and, trying new stuff. And there's, and there's, you know, it's sort of like digging for gold in each new frontier that you find because uh, somebody just sent me an article about people who use Instagram to make hundreds of thousands a year selling fashion products. So, you know, at every, in, in every kind of medium, there's, there's some way, there's some outlet where you can do what you love, but also the audience is there to potentially make money from it as well as be artistic. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it, these are all just tools that you can use for whatever, you know, ends you're you're up for. So, show your work, 10 ways to share your creativity and get discovered. Uh, I, again, use this every day and it's forced me to be creative about what I show, where I show it, how I show it. Almost sounds like I'm exposing myself or something, but... It's a, it's a great book. I highly recommend it to everybody. Austin, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Austin, this will be up like probably in about a week or so. Awesome, man. Yeah, send me the link. I'll blast it out. What's your, what's your next book that you're going to work on? I have no idea, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Let, let yeah. it just hit you. It's, 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 <laughs> yep. it's yep. sort of waiting for it. Yep. I think that's one cool thing about being out on tour and like doing interviews and stuff is you hear everyone's questions and you know stuff starts to form in your head and you know you just kind of have this backlog of interesting questions that after the tour you can kind of figure out you know you can almost combine the two books you could do a book called work your art how to make uh, a living no matter what your art is Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of the, it's interesting, that's like the next frontier, right, is like doing the book about uh, how to actually make the dough. Um, but, and it's, it's happening, I mean, every day, every single day, I get, you know, I either see examples or get letters from people who basically strike out on their own. Like, I just got an, I just got an email from somebody in Florida, he was rejected, I don't know, five years in a row for, for the NBA, he was like, you know, an all star college NBA player uh, and then he was on some D league but he can't he couldn't break it into the NBA at all and he couldn't get onto the European teams so he just started doing YouTube videos like motivational YouTube videos f focused around how to be a better basketball player now he's got like 26 million views on his YouTube videos and lo and behold he's, he's going to make a living for the rest of his life doing this that's TG people do the thing he couldn't pull off <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but you know, sometimes, as you say, that that doesn't always the, the best. Ba like Kobe Bryant might not be the best basketball coach. Oh, absolutely. I say that all the time. Is that genius can't really teach you anything because they don't really, you know, it's the those super those super humanly gifted people. Like they don't really have much to offer us, you know, just because they're doing their thing and they're like stuck in it. So actually, I mean, I think that like, I think that's brilliant what that dude's doing. You know? It's almost like when you find the people in your seniors, it's not necessarily the people at the top, the ones who are your heroes, but the other people who are 
you know, trying to learn their craft and be like the heroes. These are all the people who are going through it, who you're, who you're learning from. You know, those are the best, uh, the best teachers, the best ways to learn, the best ways to, to learn how to be more creative and so on. Yeah, your fellow students, you know, yeah. and, and I think that that's always been the, um, you know, that's always been, like we started out talking about, you know, Ivy League schools and stuff like that. I mean, that's always been kind of the draw of college is that, you know, you would be surrounded by people your own age that were also trying to attempt to do interesting things. I'm just not sure that, you know, college is the right place to do that anymore. You know, just like you. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Did you go to college? Yeah. Yeah, I went to undergrad um, and finished. Uh, I I did undergrad and then was thrown out of grad school. But I kind of feel (laughs) like it was five years wasted. Like I could have been doing stuff instead of just kind of doing what people do when they're in college. I mean, what what I don't like about college is it really, you become very invested in that particular, in college. You don't really become invested in, you know, any kind of wider world, you know. So basically, like, I feel like colleges, like college really, um, college really encourages students to be really into college. And then they get out and they're like, wait, I don't have anything to, you know, it's like, well, yeah, you just ignored the, the wider world for four years while you were getting a so-called education. Right, there's a huge financial opportunity cost and time opportunity cost. And, you know, the funny thing is money you can make back, but time you can never make back, and that's that's critical. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So, yeah. Well, thanks again, and uh, look, next time I'm in Austin, uh, maybe we can grab a cup of coffee or something. Yeah, look me up, definitely. All right, well, thanks, Austin. I'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Thanks. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go i participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last